Well, I have some good news to share. Pretty exciting. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be so wealthy because I got a fax the other day up in the church office from this lawyer in Canada. And I didn't know this, but I've got a long-lost relative in Canada who had a $3 million estate. He died without any heirs. And somehow this lawyer found me all the way in Georgia. And, and so any day now, I'm going to be a multimillionaire. Isn't that exciting? All I have to do is send him my driver's license number, social security number, and my bank account number, and he's going to deposit all this money to my bank. Right? No, no. That, uh, that fax was file 13 real quick. Uh, yeah, I threw that away immediately because it was too good to be true. It was fake news, if you will. It could not and would not deliver on the promise that it gave me. Maybe you've gotten a fax like that or an email from a Nigerian prince. You ever gotten that one, you know? You know, we, we come across that kind of fake good news, that news that's too good to be true. We see it all the time. And it's not always a scam, an obvious scam like that. Sometimes it's an advertisement on TV. You know, or an ad in Facebook that, uh, that promises, promises to solve your problems, that promises to make you look younger and feel better and grow back your hair or, you know, whatever. It, it promises to make you happy and make life easier. Do those always pan out that way? No. Sometimes it's a politician who promises that if you give them just a little bit more control over your life, If you sacrifice just a little bit of freedom for a lot of security, if you just vote for them, they'll make your life healthier and happier and easier. They'll solve all your problems. Right. It's about as as believable as that fax I got. So is it any wonder that people are skeptical of good news? Is it any wonder people today feel a little jaded when we tell them the truth of the gospel and the difference that Jesus makes in our lives? kind of hard to fault them for that. Imagine, if you will, being a first century Jew. And you've heard all your life these amazing stories of your people. Going all the way back to Abraham, how God made Abraham this great promise and miraculously gave he and Sarah a child. How God rescued Joseph from prison and slavery in Egypt and through him saved the family of Jacob from starvation of how God worked through Moses and these ten amazing plagues to deliver Israel from Egypt, to part the Red Sea, to provide for them through the wilderness, to bring them to the Promised Land and make the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. You've heard the stories. You've heard the promises from those ancient prophecies, uh, prophets that God would send a Messiah, a rescuer, who would deliver people and restore the fortunes of Israel and that the nations would flock to Jerusalem and worship your God. You've heard these stories all your life. But all your life you've also lived under the boot of Roman oppression. Your family's poor. You have to pay taxes you can't afford. You're fearful every time Roman troops come marching through your village. And the leaders of your faith, the people who are supposed to have all the answers and give you truth and peace and hope, they can't even get along with each other. They can't even agree with each other. You've got the Pharisees who are holier than thou and and, and set these expectations no one can live up to. You've got the Sadducees 
who are so wealthy and so, uh, you know, aristocratic, and, and they're up there in Jerusalem, so cut off from everyday people. And then there are the Essenes, who are the weirdos living out in the desert, waiting for the end of the world. The scribes are far too educated for their own good, and the priests, well, they just are concerned about you keeping all the right rituals and making the right sacrifices and giving them money. That's all they care about. So yeah, talk about being jaded and skeptical. They wondered, does God care about His people? Are these ancient prophecies and stories, are they even true? Will this Messiah ever come? You know, I have to imagine that maybe some of those shepherds out in the fields near Bethlehem that night might have felt this way. They might have had these kinds of questions. So imagine how humbled and overwhelmed they must have been when those angel hosts appeared to give them that heavenly announcement. The Messiah today in Bethlehem? Is this for real? The angels that night were the first ones to give Jesus that title of Messiah. Christ, anointed one. What does that even mean? What does it mean to be the anointed one? Well, we have to look back in the Old Testament. In the glory days of the people of Israel, there were three offices to which somebody could be anointed. Prophet, priest, and king. And what did it mean to be anointed? Well, to be anointed meant to be set aside to be set apart and dedicated for a holy purpose. If you were anointed to the Lord, you were no longer a free agent. You didn't belong to yourself. You belonged to God. So whether a prophet, a priest, or a king, you spoke, you served, you ruled as God's representative to the people. You didn't speak on your own behalf. So for Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, means that He was the fulfillment of, of all of those offices. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. He would speak the very word of God to the nations. He would be the ultimate mediator between God and humanity. He was the one promised to bring God's kingdom rule and reign to the world. Last week we marveled at this heavenly birth announcement that the angels brought to the shepherds. This, this, it's amazing how God intentionally chose to announce the coming of the prophet, priest, and king, not to prophets, not to priests, and not to kings. He announced it to common, everyday working folk, to shepherds. And I wonder how much those shepherds, as they looked at this Messiah in the manger, how much did they really understand? It had to be hard to imagine how this baby, born in a stable in Bethlehem, born to a young Jewish couple, how could he possibly be the fulfillment of all God's promises and His plan? Didn't it seem too good to be true? We'll have to imagine if you hear an announcement from an angel choir, you pretty much have to believe it, right? I mean, it it just kind of goes without saying But as we saw last week, they didn't just believe because they heard. They went and they sought out Jesus. They went to see for themselves. They met Jesus personally and they went away worshiping God and bearing witness of all they had seen and heard. The good news had been announced. The good news came and was born. The good news was proclaimed. The good news was fulfilled. This baby was the fulfillment 
of all their hopes and dreams. His birth was God making good on all those promises. And so they left shouting the good news that had been fulfilled that day. Well, this morning I want us to consider how Jesus is that final fulfillment of all God's promises, of all God's plans. He is the fulfillment of the good news of great joy for all people. The Old Testament law, sacrifices, temple, the prophecies, they were all meant to point the way to Jesus. So first this morning I want us to consider how Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system. He fulfilled the sacrificial system. Systems. We looked at this a little bit last week, the significance of the sign the angels gave to the shepherds that this baby would be swaddled in cloths and would be found lying in a manger in a feeding trough for sheep. In case you weren't here last week or, you know, like me, you've slept since then, so maybe you don't remember. But newborn male lambs, especially firstborn lambs, were sacrificial lambs. They were to be spotless without blemish, completely perfect. And so when they were born, the shepherds would remove them from the herd, would, would swaddle them with their legs up under them and place them in a manger out of harm's way until they could clear out the rest of the sheep and get it alone with its mother so it could nurse and gain its strength and be kept safe or else it might be crushed by the flock. So as shepherds raising sacrificial sheep, to be sacrificed in a temple which was just a few miles away in Jerusalem. These men understood this sign. Listen, Jesus' birth in this stable in Bethlehem was no coincidence. It was no coincidence that the decree was made that everyone should return to their ancestral home to be taxed. That was part of God's divine plan. It was no coincidence they couldn't find any other room in Bethlehem but this stable. That was part of God's divine plan. Because this heavenly birth announcement to these shepherds, this sign was appointed for them and for us to tell us something about Jesus. He is the perfect spotless Lamb of God. He is the once for all sacrifice for the sins of mankind. He was born to die to pay the price for our sins so that we might live. Amen? That's good news. The author of Hebrews explains how Jesus is that once for all time final sacrifice for the sins of humanity. No more lambs need to be sacrificed to cover our sins. After all, our sins are far more numerous than all the lambs we could ever slay. There's never enough lambs. Hebrews 9.12 says, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. Jesus didn't have to sacrifice animals. It says that He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. See, under the Old Testament sacrificial system, you had to bring a lamb to be sacrificed for your sins. You couldn't borrow somebody else's lamb. Somebody couldn't give you a lamb for you to sacrifice. You had to bring your own or buy your own. It had to cost you something, this sacrifice for your sins. But suddenly in the New Testament, everything is reversed. God provides the lamb. It's not the worshiper that has to bring the sacrifice. God brought the sacrifice. It's not the one who is the offender that brings the lamb. It's the one who was offended. It's not the sinner. It's the Savior. God gave us the lamb that we needed for our sins. We read in 1 Peter 1 last week 
Peter said, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was perfect in every way. We're in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is both the spotless sacrificial lamb and he is the high priest. And unlike the high priests of Jerusalem in the first century who were all, you know, up there having their hobnobbing with Roman officials and being all wealthy and, you know, living it up in Beverly Hills kind of a lifestyle, unlike those priests, Jesus is approachable. He bent down to us. He is like us. He understands us. He sympathizes with us. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And we can approach His throne of grace with boldness when we need to ask for His help. This high priest didn't sacrifice sheep to temporarily cover our sins. No, he came as the perfect sacrifice to take away our sins. He removed them for us as far away as the east is from the west. He came willingly to die in our place that we might have abundant and eternal life as children of God. He fulfilled the sacrificial system. Secondly, Jesus fulfilled the temple and tabernacle. In Isaiah chapter 7, which we heard read this morning, the Syrians were on the verge of attacking Jerusalem. And the prophet Isaiah confronted King Ahaz and warned him not to go looking for outside help. Don't turn to pagan kings to come and rescue you. God will protect you. And and as a sign, Isaiah encouraged Ahaz to ask God for a sign to show that this was truly the message from God, that God could be trusted. Well, Ahaz refused to ask for a sign, and he refused to trust in God. Instead, he trusted in the Assyrian king, which would later come back to bite him. And so Isaiah said this in verse 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You won't ask for a sign, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. A sign given centuries earlier to an apostate king was meant for all of God's people and would find its ultimate fulfillment in a stable in Bethlehem. Matthew 1, 22-23 goes on to explain that after Gabriel appeared to Joseph, it says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel. Such a powerful name because it reminds us that while our sins keep us from coming to God, they could not keep God from coming to us. God would not let our sins stand in the way. He humbled Himself. He emptied Himself. He took on the form of a servant so He could tabernacle among us. That's what John writes in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, the Word, meaning the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Greek word there is literally, He tabernacled among us. 
He came to live and dwell in our midst. And that's the story of the Bible. It's ultimately the story about a God who has a persistent desire to dwell with His people. We look all the way back to Genesis. Chapter 28, we see this. As God speaks to Abraham, He says, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And God says the same thing to us. Isaiah 43, 2 beautifully conveys to us this promise from God. When you pass through the waters, through those events and things in your life that you feel like you're drowning, they're going to overwhelm you, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Psalm 23 says that even when we're walking through the darkest of life's valleys, we need not fear because God is with us to guide us and protect us and comfort us. Jesus said in the Great Commission that He would be with us to the end of the age. And the grand gospel story concludes with this pronouncement in Revelation 21.3. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. God wants to be with you. But we're so quick sometimes to accuse God of being absent when we find ourselves walking in those dark valleys, when we find ourselves riding through the storms of life and those times of suffering or sorrow, of disaster or tragedy. But listen, God isn't absent from these situations. He goes with us through these situations. He walks with us through those dark valleys. He's in the boat with us through life's storms to hold us, to carry us, to bind up our wounds, to redeem us from sin and sickness. He is the God who is with us. God persistently seeks to dwell with His people. And in the person of Jesus Christ, God emptied and humbled Himself to be one of us, to live among us. And by His Holy Spirit, He comes to dwell within the hearts of all those who trust in Him. On Mount Sinai, in addition to the Ten Commandments, God gave Moses, this is in the book of Exodus, He gave Moses the instructions, the the blueprints for building a tent, a tabernacle, a place where God's glorious presence could dwell with His people. And so towards the end of Exodus, Moses builds this tent and he dedicates it and God's glorious presence comes flooding into that tabernacle with lightning and smoke and thunder. It truly is an awe-inspiring, fear-inducing moment. And Moses goes to enter the tabernacle, and he can't. He can't enter. God's holiness would consume him because he is a sinner. Reminds me of Isaiah as he's in the temple, and he has this vision of God's holiness, and he says, woe is me, I am undone. Moses would have been undone if he had entered that tabernacle. So God gave Moses the law in the book of Leviticus. He gave Moses the sacrificial system. By these, God would forgive His people's sins. The the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and would offer a sacrifice of, of atonement to cover over the people's sins. And He did this year after year after year because it was a temporary solution. But it provided the way by which God's people could be made clean. And so you come to the beginning of the book of Numbers and Moses is able to enter the tabernacle. Because of the sacrifices, because of the law, he can come into God's glorious presence. It's like how God took the the, the coal from the altar and touched Isaiah's lips and made him clean. I want you to listen to me this morning. 
Jesus is both the sacrifice by which we are made clean and pure and righteous before God, and He is the tabernacle by which we dwell with God and God dwells within us forever. Because Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. He has taken away your sin and mine. We can know Him as Emmanuel, the God who has come to save us, redeem us, so He could be with us. He fulfills the sacrificial system as the spotless lamb and the high priest. He fulfills the temple and tabernacle as Emmanuel, the God who dwells with us. And third, Jesus fulfilled the messianic promises. The name Jesus, of course, is an English name. It's based on the Greek Jesus, which is a Greek transliteration of Yeshua. That's the Hebrew So Jesus was known as Yeshua, which itself is a derivative of the name we call Joshua. And it means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is my salvation. Now, Jesus was a common name in first century Palestine. There would have been lots of moms and dads calling for Jesus to come in for supper. It was a common name. That's why often in the Gospels we read Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus, son of Joseph, to set him apart from all the other Jesuses. But even though this name was common, how Jesus got his name was very uncommon. Mary and Joseph didn't consult the the best Hebrew baby name book and pick it out. No, the angel Gabriel instructed both Mary and Joseph to name him Jesus. His name was holy. It was divine because as Gabriel explained to Joseph He would live up to His name. Jesus did come to save His people from their sins. The people for hundreds of years had been looking for this Messiah. This anointed one who would encapsulate all three offices of the Old Testament. They wanted one to come in fulfillment of the prophecies of a king like David who would someday rule from Jerusalem, who would restore God's people to their land and their temple. They longed for a prophet like Moses, who would inscribe God's law not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. They were looking for the ultimate priest who would forever mediate between God and mankind. But the people had become short-sighted. By the time of Jesus, they were really only concerned about their current situation, living under Roman oppression. They wanted someone to kick Rome out. They wanted a military victor. Well, Jesus didn't come to be that kind of Messiah. They didn't understand that Jesus came to save not only the Jews, but all people. Not from political and military oppression under Rome, but a greater oppression. He came to save us from the oppression of sin. He came to conquer the power of Satan and of the grave. He came to save people from sin. The apostles understood this in Acts 4.12. We read this the other day. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. He didn't mean being saved from Rome. He meant being saved from damnation, eternity, and hell. He meant being saved from the worst version of ourselves and our sin. He meant being saved from the flesh and the power of Satan. Jesus' name was His identity. He was the Savior. Think about this. Every time somebody called Jesus' name, every time somebody called Him by His name, 
It reminded him of why he came. That's right, I'm the Savior. I am Yahweh's salvation. Jesus even said of himself, I said, he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Do we really grasp that? Do we really understand and appreciate how Jesus came to save us from ourselves? To save us from our sinful trajectory that would end us forever separated from the presence and the love of God. He came to save us from sin and the grave. But more than that, Jesus didn't just come to save us from something. He came to save us for something. He came to save us to restore to us the divine image of God so we could bear that image in the world, so that we could shine forth the glory and presence and love and power of our Creator God. He saved us so that we could reflect the Father's glory. We've looked this morning at three ways that Jesus fulfilled all the works and the words of God. The plans and the promises in the Old Testament. Jesus is the high priest who fulfills the sacrificial system. He is the perfect and ultimate mediator between a holy God and sinful mankind. We've seen how Jesus is Emmanuel, fulfilling the role of the the tabernacle and the temple. God come to dwell with us. And Jesus fulfilled the true role of the Messiah, not a political or military hero, but to rescue us from ourselves and our sins and Satan's power. And in that way, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, the priestly role and the prophetic role. But there's one more role that Jesus came to fulfill. Jesus fulfilled the role of king. Prophet, priest, and king. Now, this one's a little hard for us to understand because as Americans, we don't have a king. We went to war to get rid of a king, right? We have no king. So we have to kind of put ourselves back in the mindset of ancient Israel. And when we look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see that Israel rejected God as their true king. God was their king. And they rejected God as king because they wanted a flesh and blood king a human king, so they could be like the other nations. I mean, literally, they come to Samuel, they say, well, Samuel, everybody else is doing it. We want a king too. We want to be like the other nations. They had a king. They had a special relationship with their king, with their creator God, their redeemer and savior. But they wanted a king they could touch and see. And so they rejected the God that they knew by faith and trust. They squandered their uniqueness among all the other nations. The chosen people wanted to be like everybody else. And the irony is that in the Exodus, God delivered them from a king. He delivered them from Pharaoh. He delivered them from the worldly kingdom of oppression represented by Egypt. And now that they've settled in the promised land and God has established them as a new kind of kingdom, they wanted to go back to the ways of Egypt. They wanted to go to the ways of the pagan nations living around them. But listen, I'm going to let you in on a little secret this morning. God always intended them to have a king. God was going to give them a king. Back in Genesis, Jacob prophesied that there's going to be a king of God's people come from the line of Judah. In Deuteronomy 17, God warns them. He says, you know, you're going to get into the land, you're going to settle down, things are going to be good, and you're going to ask for a king. 
He predicted that they would do this, and so he laid out instructions and expectations for the king of Israel. As we often are, Israel was impatient. They wanted a king at the wrong time, for the wrong reasons, and so they got the wrong king. They wanted someone tall and handsome, strong and imposing. They wanted a king that the other nations would sit up and take notice of. So God gave them what they asked for. They got King Saul. And Saul was tall and handsome and strong and commanding. He proved to be a great warrior. But the people quickly developed buyer's remorse because Saul was a failure. He was rash, impulsive, selfish, hot-headed, faithless toward God, disobedient. The people got a Saul. But what they really longed for was a David. And so God sent the prophet Samuel on a talent search for Israel's next king. And he sent him to a small little town in the Judean wilderness, a little place called Bethlehem, to find an unlikely king, a shepherd boy. No one would ever dream that this boy could become a king of God's people, much less a king after God's own heart. But he did. And David stood out among all the kings of Israel and Judah. I mean, there were a few good ones. You had your Solomons, your Josiahs, your Hezekiahs, but most of them were pretty awful. Most of them were like Saul. Idolatrous, oppressive, self-serving. But even the good ones like David were still sinners. Even the good ones failed sometimes miserably, publicly, morally. Even David did. So you can imagine the heartache and the yearning of the people. Would they ever have that king that had been promised so long ago through Jacob? Jacob said in Genesis 49.10, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. This is one of the oldest messianic prophecies. A king would come from the line of Judah, and the obedience of the nations would be his. Or this prophecy, Micah 5, 2, we heard some of it this morning, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. That's the kind of king that Israel longed for and hoped for, the king for whom David was a mere shadow. And that king is King Jesus. His rule, His reign will cover the earth. He will bring peace, not only to Israel, but to all mankind. And finally, He will be the King they had always longed for. The irony of it is, the King they always longed for, well, that was the King they had in the beginning. The Lord God Himself always was and will be our King. But it was in God's sovereign plan that their desire for a human king would be exactly what God always intended. The one king who had the heart of God, David, became the model for the ultimate king who would someday rule God's people with justice and righteousness. And like David, this king would come from Bethlehem. 
of low estate, a son of Jesse, the least likely person you'd expect. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And on the surface, it does sound too good to be true. That the holy creator of the cosmos would care enough about you and me to go to all this trouble? To set his plan in motion from before the foundations of the world? To make these promises to Israel and by extension to us thousands of years ago, half a world away? And that God would keep his word? Mm. The good news that we've expected, that we've longed for, that was announced to undeserving everyday people and has been proclaimed so that it reaches through the ages to us today. It is good and it is true. It is more true than any truth has ever been. But the only way this good news can be fulfilled for you and for me is if we receive it and embrace it and trust it and give our lives to it. A Christmas present is a beautiful thing wrapped in under the tree but it's there to be given. It's there to be received. It's there to be opened. It's there to be held. And that's what we must do with this good news. Is Jesus your King? Have you placed your trust in Him to be your Savior? Will you by faith today receive the grace of His sacrifice provided to give you forgiveness, to make you clean and new? Will you allow Him to enter your life to set up house in your heart and make you His temple? Jesus wants to be Emmanuel for you. He wants to be God with you. What will you do with this greatest of gifts? It's been presented to you. It's been proclaimed to you. Will you take it? Will you receive it? Will will you make it your own? Will you take that gift and share it with others? That's the call for us today. As I said last week, this good news demands action. You can't just sit on it. You have to decide what you're going to do with it. If this morning you need to come and you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come today. Receive this gift for the first time. Open it up. Receive it into your heart. Let Jesus make you new and clean. Maybe you've already done that, but you've kind of grown to... Just sort of take it for granted. You've allowed the world and other things to get in and distract you and divert your attention from God. Maybe this morning you would come and kneel at this altar, come and pray with me and just say, I want to rededicate my life to my King, my Savior. I want God to restore to me the joy of my salvation. Then maybe you should come today. Maybe God is asking you to unite with this church family to help us to celebrate, to worship, and to bear witness to this good news. Would you stand and pray and come as God's Spirit leads you today? Father, when we look back at the whole of Scripture, we look at this amazing story of Your grace and Your holiness, Your love and Your justice, it brings us to our knees in wonder. All the way in Genesis chapter 3, You begin to make the promise of Christ who will come, the seed of the woman, whose heel will be bruised but will crush the head of the serpent. We see in the promise, the prophecy from Jacob of the ruler who will come to the line of Judah and the obedience of the nations will be his. We see the promise in Micah that from the little town of Bethlehem will come a ruler ancient and strong 
who will rule over all people and bring peace to the earth. Father, it begins with us opening up our hearts and letting Jesus bring peace to us. If there's anyone today here that needs that peace, that needs to know you as their Savior and Lord, I pray that they would look past any obstacle, any fear, any hesitation, would come in humble trust and surrender to let you do a mighty work in their lives. Father, if there's people here that you are calling to recommit their walk with you, to recommit the desire and the calling to share Jesus with others, to come out with this church, I pray they would step out. They would obey what you've said. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.